For the past three years, the Science of Reading Star Awards have honored educators who are beacons of light, guiding their classrooms, schools, districts, and most importantly, students through transformations with literacy. Now join us as we honor this year's winners at a special celebration event, which will feature celebrity keynoters and past podcast guests, Mitchell Brookins. Two years ago, one of my students as a school administrator came to me on the playground and he said, Mr. Brookins, I want to be like the other kids. And I said, what do you mean? He said, Mr. Brookins, I want to learn how to read. And Malcolm Mitchell. When I scored a touchdown, they either probably put my name in a newspaper, people probably tell me good job all around town. But when I finished one book, no one ever said anything. So which one am I more likely to repeat? Find out more information and register for the 2024 Science of Reading Star Awards ceremony at amplify.com slash Star Awards celebrations. That's amplify.com slash Star Awards celebration, all one word. Welcome to Science of Reading, the podcast. I'm your host, Susan Lambert. We're just two weeks away from launching our sixth season. But first, we have one more episode in our Summer Rewind series. This time, we're highlighting a season four conversation with Dr. Elsa Cardenas-Hagen, Director of Valley Speech and Learning Center in Brownsville, Texas. We want to feature this conversation because we know that many students in your schools and classrooms are simultaneously learning a new language and how to read that language. This episode provides helpful guidance on how teachers can make connections between students' home language and English to develop biliteracy superpowers. Here's my conversation with Elsa. Well, hello, Elsa. Thank you so much for joining us on today's episode. I'm so happy to be here, and thank you for the invitation. Absolutely. I know that our listeners are going to be really, really um, supported by and have lots of questions answered in this episode as it relates to English language learners. But before we jump in, we always like to hear a little bit about your professional journey. Like, how did you end up being so deeply interested in this topic? Like you said, it's always a a very long journey, but I began my career in speech and language uh, pathology and worked in the Houston Medical Center for many years in head trauma, working with individuals that had head injuries and really just fascinated by the brain and how how wonderful (laughs) that that this organ is and that how we could rehabilitate folks and move down along the Texas-Mexico border where I was originally from after many years and began to um, think about the students that we were serving and found that, hmm, it's not only language delays here, there's something more going on. And so that journey began with you know, going back to Houston, taking courses in the Night House Education Service Center for two years back and forth so that I could get a specialty in um, the area of dyslexia. And being a speech and language pathologist, you know so much about language. You're the expert. But I learned so much more about how reading works and how the written language, like those spelling patterns work. And then saw that there were too many children uh, in our area that didn't have Um, you know, the skills that they needed. And so we started a community effort called Brownsville Reads uh, with my co-founder, Norma Garza. And we wanted to make sure that every kinder, and this was in the early, the late 90s. And we wanted to make sure that every child could read. And that's how my journey started then with really becoming an advocate and learning and, and trying to really help children. So in that context then, um, of where you were like, every kid needs to learn how to read, um, you didn't have primarily English-speaking students. No, it was fascinating that, uh, you know, the school district that, um, you know, we work with uh, right here locally in our Brownsville area, you know, it's uh, primarily Hispanic, you know, the majority of uh, children and high, high levels of poverty. But as we began the work, uh, we found that, wow, we can prevent these, you know, significant disabilities if we start early working in language and in literacy in in a very 
systematic approach and that we empowered all of our teachers to have that knowledge of, and now we call it the science of reading, but have that knowledge of what all the, all that goes into good reading instruction. But not only, you know, it's really interesting. We had, we had invited Louisa Motes and Dr. Reed Lyon for our first symposia and they came and I was embarrassed when the teachers were like, but Dr. Reed Lyon, uh, and Dr. Louisa Motes, what about the students that don't speak English? And then they went back and 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 Reed Lyon really went to Congress to ask, you know what, we need an initiative for biliteracy. And that's how, um, you know, this kind of research began in the United States. And thanks to Reed Lyon and the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, United States Department of Education, Institute of Education Sciences, they dedicated themselves like, we got to catch up and know what to do. We've learned all of this about reading, but what about these students from diverse populations? You know, what should we do? And I think the other key to the success that we've had here in Brownsville is has been that we have been an area where, uh, in all these more than oh, close to 25 years, we've always had a national research project going on. And I just want to tell you, you learn sometimes nobody wants to have the researchers in there. But when you do, it's like we're a team. We can figure out what's working and what's not working. And we can write about it and uh, really figure out, you know, even further the science of reading and especially for this population of students. But, um, you know, it's so wonderful to be at this point to where, you know, this kind of work is going on across the whole United States. We still have more to do and we need, there's still, you know, we know that there's still gaps in, in our, um, in the research that we need to do more and have, you know, huge bodies of evidence, but we've got enough to know what goes in to good early literacy instruction. Mm, I can't wait to dig into that. And before we do, I just want to make one comment. Um, you said that work has been happening for well over 20 years or something. I mean, that just is a message that we need to get out there that this isn't a one or two year initiative that you need to stay focused on this effort and focused on this work. That's right. And we always want to refine what we're doing, even if we're happy that, wow, it looks like the majority of students are on level, but can we get them to the highest levels, the most proficient levels? And as you know, through the nation's report card, you see that, oh, you know, you know, less, you know, less than 35% of our students, 34% are proficient. And that's what we're trying to get at. And it's less for students who are English learners or come from diverse populations. So, uh, you know, we cannot be satisfied with basic skills. Our students for their future, you know, to become, you know, and meet all their dreams, they need to be proficient. And this work mm. can be done because it has been done. And, you know, we need to learn from the regions that have been implementing this kind of work for decades and has kept it sustainable. That's the other thing. Once we get something started, can we keep with it and not, you know, break off to that mission of every child a reader? Hmm. Those are really wise words. And just, yeah, just a reminder that that level of expectation and, you know, we can do it. It takes an effort, but we can do it. And we're learning as continuing to learn in the work. Um, all right. Before we sort of dig into some of the details of supporting English language learners, like in the classroom, one thing we know is that uh, English language learners are provided with instruction through a few different program models. So how a school thinks about organizing this instruction. I'd love if you could walk us through those models and how folks might consider how to leverage those models. And so I, I love that you're bringing that up because what you're doing is having us think more deeply about the context in which these students are served. And as we look at that, we know that many students are served in what in general education classrooms and they have what they call English as a second language. So some, uh, you know, persons who may not speak their native language, but know some effective strategies to help them make connections in the classroom. So those might be called like ESL. You probably have heard of that. And, and one of the things um, that we know is that we also want 
you know, those teachers to have great knowledge, not only about language, but also about literacy and how we can infuse that, those language skills and systematic manners as they're learning English uh, and English language. And what happens to these students is they're learning it simultaneously. Often, if they're in another program, some programs, you know, have, okay, I'm only but what they're learning in the ESL classrooms is I'm learning simultaneously language while I'm learning about literacy. And what I like to say is the more I know about language, right, that will help my literacy. And the more I know about mm-hmm. literacy, that will certainly enhance my language skills. And so I really, mm-hmm. you know, we should really be seeing it as one supports the other. And reading is language-based. So we must have excellent language skills to have excellent literacy skills. But our instructors need to know about not only how we develop language, but how do we get reading off the ground? How do we move from those foundational skills and also all the while be working on vocabulary and comprehension as we move through? Another model Mm. that uh, students might be served in, Susan, is um, what you've probably heard about transitional bilingual education models. And so oftentimes in those program models, they, you know, the decision has been, okay, we're going to get these children in, we're going to try and give them the support in their native language, and then we're going to move them into that second language. So it's a more of a sequential kind of model. And one of the things that you see is some of those might be called early exit where, oh, by second grade, you know, it's all English or late exit where, oh, it's not till fourth or fifth grade, right? But whether you're doing early exit or late exit, what we need to know is who's going to be supporting first language and second language, and when is first language literacy going to occur, and second language literacy, and are we aligning that? Because oftentimes what we found out in one of our studies, all right, we were in third grade, the children were now in these early exit program, it was third grade, they were supposed to be reading to learn information, but they didn't really know how to read in English and we needed resources to teach that, to get them to where they could get to read, to learn. And so, um, you know, we quickly had to get on our feet and say, Hey, wait a minute. They need some of these other skills uh, so that we can get them to reading, to learn. And all of this has to be done. Like we know what the standards are within that school year. Other models are called um, dual language models. And sometimes what you have is they'll say, oh, it's 50-50. And what that means is, you know, 50% of their time and instruction is spent on a particular language and the other 50% on another language, you know, so it's usually English and another language. And um, and so that's also going to be important when you're doing that kind of work. Yeah. All right. Great. Are we learning about language and literacy simultaneously? Are we making sure we're teaching the structure across? And are we using strategies to where one reinforces the other? And in the United States, we have like 5 million English learners, but more, you know, it's getting close to 80% of them speak Spanish as their first language. Uh, And then we, of course, we have other languages um, such as like Arabic and um, Vietnamese and um, Chinese, but they all represent like less than, uh, less than, you know, maybe less than 3%, 2% is what we're looking at. Every child Mm -hmm. in every language is important. Don't get me wrong there. but can we capitalize upon what they know? And as an instructor, I might not know much about Vietnamese, but I know that if I have a student that speaks Vietnamese, I'm going to look up, "Hmm, are there any sounds in Vietnamese that can really enhance their learning of English? And are there some that uh, can, you know, go back and forth? So uh, I think that's also our responsibility as educators, as the professionals, to know this information because these are the students. And I. this is what I tell teachers. It's not, will I have a student that has another home language other than English? It's <laughs> how many am I going to get? It's when. Right? No matter <laughs> yeah. where. So yep. it is going to happen. And then you don't want to be lost. You want to be prepared. And so I think no matter what the model is, whether it's, you know, uh, bilingual education models with transitional or whether it's dual language occurring at the same time. Some of them will say immersion, that they have immersion. Oh, it's good. This is going to be Spanish immersion or this is going to be English immersion. Um, 
or whether it's English as a second language program, no matter what the program is, look carefully at how you're going to design opportunities, very intentional, well-designed opportunities for learning language and the structure of the language to get to those foundational skills of literacy so that you can get them to reading to learn and to get them to wonderful reading comprehension because that's the ultimate goal. And the more we are able to read, the more we are able to learn. Hmm. That was really helpful. And, and what I was thinking about while you were talking about those models was the fact that it sounds to me like you're not saying one model is better than the other model. It's like opening the, let's see, like uncovering what's underneath the models. What kind of instruction is happening underneath the models? Is is that kind of instruction the most effective, um, right. most effective instruction to help kids learn how to read? Does that seem right? So that that does seem right. And it's very difficult to conduct research in the models because there's so many variables that when you go in there, uh, you know, we may say we're doing this and it just quite doesn't look, you know, what one classroom is doing versus the other. It's not as standardized as we may think because potentially the diversity in that classroom or, you know, there's many variables. and so. You know, what I want to say is exactly what you're saying, Susan, is just that, okay, no matter what district I'm in and no matter what model they've chosen, I have to ensure that the children are having very unique opportunities for language development that are well designed and that are going to have plenty of opportunities for uh, for use and practice and and then also they must learn uh, how reading works. And some people say, well, you only learn to read once. Well, yeah, I learned to read, but I learned to read in my native language, but then I had to learn to read in a second language. And you have to teach me, well, how does it work? You know, this English language is so confusing. You know, how come you don't say that silent E at the end and I say it at the end? And how come you have these other vowel sounds and they're kind of short and how, why do you have that schwa you know that's complicated <laughs> and so the more I know yeah. about oh okay oh uh, you borrowed from a lot of different languages oh English is very Latin based oh I can make connections to all those Latin based languages oh you know there's the Anglo-Saxon part of English and the Greek you know and uh, the French came in and it really goes with history how all this happened but I've got to learn how reading works in English. And just because I have native language literacy, that helps me, but I still have to know the science of English reading. Hmm. That's a perfect segue to what I wanted to explicitly ask you about, which is, you know, on this podcast, we talk all the time about the simple view of reading framework or Scarborough's Rofe framework, that we sort of use these frameworks to understand the things that kids need to have to become proficient readers. How does that translate then in the context of developing English language learners or second lear uh, language learners? Right. So one of the, well, one of the things that I do know um, that we have to consider and, uh, you know, I've had the great opportunity to work with teams of researchers at, at the University of Houston has been, you know, our work um, in really looking at these early literacy uh, work and, and then also looking at, ah, how does it work, you know, in later years. And one of the things I want to tell you is that um, as we, we have to know the whole picture. And if you don't know the whole picture, uh, you know, so I think about myself as I work with children with language and learning disabilities. So, you know, who, who, who can give me a good picture? Families, right? The families can give me a good picture. The teachers can tell me what's going on in the classroom and we can work mm -hmm. collaboratively uh, to make this happen. And I know collaboration takes time and an investment, but it's so well worth it because we can all, we're all partners in the education of an individual who we want to succeed. All of us want the same thing. And one of the things that we have to take into consideration as we look at, well, what are these early skills look like? 
well, what have been the opportunities? You know, was there any opportunity for early childhood interventions or early childhood programming? Uh, did they go to preschool? Um, and now, you know, we're in kindergarten. Here are the things we're doing in kindergarten, but how can I, in in, in the kindergarten year, how can I make, how can I make that, um, how can I make sure that they're still going to be achieving these skills while I also know I'm working on language and can I use the knowledge that they already have? So like, let's say in kindergarten, what, or preschool, kindergarten, let's just say, what, what do they do? Beautiful early childhood classrooms. You know what they've done for decades and decades? They have worked on phonological awareness. They bring in beautiful books. They focus on the sounds. They do rhyming. They do alliteration. And they begin to work on, oh, you know, did you notice this individual sound? And did you notice that we switched the sound to make a rhyme? All of that is phonological awareness. And what's beautiful about that is those skills transfer so lovely. So if you look at a language like Spanish and English and you look, okay, well, Spanish we say has about, you know, some people will say 22 sounds, some will say up to 24. In English, we say English has 44. Some will say up to 46. No matter how you look at it, mm -hmm. English has double the number of sounds in the Spanish language. And so like, let's say I already have that capability of playing with the sounds of the language and working with those sounds and rhyming with words and identifying sounds and manipulating. Well, I should be able to do that in the English language. And actually the correlation is 0.92. So we're 0 0.08 off from it being a perfect correlation. But what could possibly that 0 0.08 represent? The new sounds. So as I work with these students, I'm not going to just treat them like how I treat a monolingual English speaker, you know, starting from the beginning. No, no, they already can do this in their language. What am I going to do that's different? I'm going to check it out. And I'm going to introduce these new sounds. Have they ever, can they process that new sound? Can they produce that new sound? Can they play with that new sound? So then we can link it, right? to reading, to the symbols mm. so that they can read words and sentences and paragraphs. And so we go about our work not thinking as strategically, and we can streamline that work by taking advantage of what they bring to us. But first, I have to figure it out. I have to find out, you know, can they do this in their language? What's the same? What's different? And um, so, but all the while too, one of the other pieces of advice I have to give, even if you're working on phonological awareness and you're working on, oh, here's these new sounds and, but could I make connections? Ooh, you have a sound that's quite similar. And I like to give the example of, oh, that letter J in English is so hard for us. And you have to say in English, J, and you know, we don't, but you know, in, in the native language, our native language, we have the sound ch, and it ha we have that sound ch in English. And all it takes is, okay, students, you have the sound ch in your native language. We have it in English. Ch. You know, oftentimes we write it with that ch, right? Ch. But guess what? You mm -hmm. can, this sound j is almost the same. Touch your vocal cords, j, j. You used your vocal cords. Now turn off your voice box. Ch, ch, ch. Turn it on. J, j, j right there. They're like, oh, we never knew that. You taught us in a way we could <laughs> make a connection. And then we say, oh, and this is my word and it's jaguar. That will help you unlock the sound. Do you have the word in your language? We do. Jaguar. Oh, it's almost the same. It's like a cognate. So I was not only working on developing that phonological awareness with these new sounds, I was making a connection with the sounds and the words and the meaning. Hmm. Wow. That's amazing that you, well, first of all, you made it seem so easy. <laughs> um, um, but I think sometimes we, it, it's, you know, not being sarcastic there. I think sometimes as teachers, we feel so overwhelmed with, oh, I don't know that language. How in the world am I going to like introduce a whole new thing when instead we should be starting to understand connections. Right, right. And there's some resources. Mm -hmm. There's a website, mylanguages.org, that has, you know, you know, so many languages and how, you know, how do they relate to English? And we could start from there. And but it takes mm -hmm. the knowledgeable teacher to know. 
I know that sound. I know how it's produced. I know how it's written. I know all the patterns in this new language of English. So how can I make the connection? How can I help them with those uh, sounds? Um, and so, and then also understanding, you know, why, why, why would they make these kinds of mistakes in their reading or writing or spelling? Let me investigate that further. Why, why for the word boot, did they write B-U-T? That looks like butt to me. Well, very simply mm. in my language, ooh is spelled with you. <laughs> and you probably yeah. thought I was crazy writing the U and that I, you probably thought I was, it was butt, but I was writing boot using my knowledge of my sounds of my language and my orthography of my home language. And I was applying it. And it's almost like children go through this extra stage. It's like this extra stage of overgeneralization from the home language to the second language. And that's a good thing. It's a part of the process. We celebrate it. And we said, you know what? You got all the sounds right. You got some symbols. But though that symbol there was from your home language. Here's the new symbol that we'll use for that sound. And uh, and this is how, you know, the word and, and, and here's the meaning and and let's use it and, and um, you know, talk about it and describe it. And so it's always about bringing language in as we're and we think about language, you know, what are the components of language? Well, every language in the world has sounds, phonology. Every language in the world has words that make meaning. We call that semantics. Every language in the world has these words and within words are smaller units of meanings. And for English learners, that's those are some of the best word learning strategies for vocabulary developments. Like, oh my God, I can really, that word, I have it in my language. And I know these word parts because we think about languages that have Latin and Greek and many languages uh, have those word parts. And oftentimes I like to say, one time my son came home and he was in high school and he goes, mom, this is my vocabulary word. The word is placate. Can you tell me what it means? And I turned to him and I said, Jaimito, cuando mami te dice aplacate. He returned and told him really quickly in Spanish. It's when I say to calm down. He goes, oh, que fácil. He said, how facile. We say easy. You know, facile for us. Facile means easy. But we use higher level words. And so in the English language, words with four and five and fancy words, they're probably Latin-based words, right? Um, but, it, you know, yeah. even my son didn't make that connection. And so what I say is, can we teach the children this meta-linguistic strategy of, ah, uh, do I know this in my language? Is there a connection? By you teaching in that manner, the students start to use that as a resource. And how wonderful is that? Mm. Because you didn't give them a fish, you taught them how to fish. We'll be right back. The Science of Reading podcast is some of the best professional development I have received. I started listening to it last year as a first year teacher during the pandemic. I'm a Title I school teacher in a bilingual program in San Jose, California, and I'm entering my second year teaching now fully in the classroom. I kept a notebook where I took notes on every podcast episode and I would look up the guests and become more familiar with their work. I started integrating SOR practices in my classroom by implementing Hegarty. I finished the letters training over the summer. I started reading different books by different guests on the podcast, such as The Writing Revolution and The Knowledge Gap by Natalie Wexler. I even got my mentor for induction to read The Knowledge Gap by Natalie Wexler and subscribe to the Science of Reading podcast by Amplify. I recommended this podcast to so many of my educator friends. I love that there is a diversity of speakers and topics and yet the same themes of what we know works resurface over and over again. This podcast has definitely inspired and motivated me during a very challenging time in teaching and I'm so thankful for it and all of those people who put in the hard work of making the podcast and coming on the show to talk about what their research has found, what's working in their classroom, and what's going on in the science of reading movement across the world. Thank you so much. I also love how you celebrated what they did right, using that example of boot, right? And spelling right. it the way that they know how to represent that sound yeah. rather than making it a moment of, 
error or correction. It was yeah. a celebration with a new connection, right? Like that's, that's lovely. Right. That's respecting the language. Yeah. And another very common one I want to bring up. So they, you know, they write the word father as F-A-D-E-R. And everyone thinks that they're writing fodder. No. In our language, the D when it's in the middle position, uh, so it says the, it D is the. Mm-hmm. So they processed father, but they use their orthography, the D right. for the TH. And yeah. People don't know that. They just think, oh, these kids, why do they write father? But they're writing father. Yeah. It's just that D is TH when it's in the middle position of words between two vowels. So that Spanish D is the English TH in that medial position. And people don't know those connections. And so we think, oh, no, you didn't hear it quite right. No, they processed it correctly. They used their orthography. And that, once again, was that overgeneralization. So I would say, good for you. You heard all the sounds. And you used one of how we do in our our language or how you do in your home language. But in the English Mm -hmm. language, that sound is represented by this diagraph, these two letters that make one sound. Yeah. Wow. That's great. That's great. We will link our listeners in the show notes to that website that you, um, that you just suggested for understanding the languages, because that I'm sure to lots of folks, that will be a huge resource just to get their step, just, you know, to get started the first step. Um, so we've talked a little bit about these frameworks. I know that you've talked a lot about like the instructional approach that we need to bring. And, and our, our listeners uh, know this as structured literacy, right? So um, we haven't talked a ton about it on this podcast, um, but can you tell us a little bit about structured literacy and why you think that's important for English learners as well, that sort of instructional right, right. model? So when we think about structured literacy, and did you, do you even know where that term came from? <laughs> Uh, so I don't know that I do. I probably do, but but no, remind us. So in 2014, <laughs> the International Dyslexia Association, when uh, you know uh, it was determined that really, you know, it we're not talking about phonics where we just like always like practice, 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 decode, decode, decode. We're really talking about language and about how language supports literacy and how, uh, you know, how important language is for that development and how we need to be very comprehensive in our approach. So can we, so there were some focus groups, some surveys that went out and, you know, we had this uh, board member, John Mayo Smith, I'll never forget. I mean, he's just really an out of the box thinker. He goes, well, what do you, what do you call what you do? And like, we really didn't have a name for all that goes into <laughs> good instruction. And so that's how in 2014, the IDA um, decided to use that structured literacy, but really realizing that, you know, when you talk about students who struggle, we can prevent so many difficulties by having this very comprehensive approach. So what does it mean to have, to have a comprehensive approach. So as I told you, Dr. Reed Lyon, you know, they, he really, uh, you know, pushed and Peggy McCardle after him and, you know, Brett Miller after Peggy and really pushed this, you know, for Congress to allocate money to do this, um, you know, by literacy research. But what, what was so important in that process, um, you know, we had that national literacy panel report in the year 2000. And by 2006, you know, another team looked at the national literacy panel for language minority children and youth, looking at, you know, thousands of, of research studies. And once again, it came up that what's essential, what's essential, yes, for English learners includes, um, you know, yes, we want to work and make sure the students can process the sounds, produce the sounds. We want to make sure that they know how the language and the structure of the language works. And we need to work on their fluency, vocabulary, and comprehension. But there's some extra things. And the extra things written in that uh, national report include exactly what I was just describing to you, those cross-linguistic relationships, celebrating their language, Mm, the culture, the context. And for us, as you know, and we as you know, I know we're busy. We are so busy as educators, but for us to do a superb job, we have to take the time to figure out and and be knowledgeable about the language, 
the culture, the context, the structures. And bringing that in was actually written in, you know, that it was very important to look at those cross-linguistic relationships and bring in that knowledge. But they also talked about, you know, we need, you know, preparation of teachers and we need also better assessments um, to uh, make sure that we're looking at these children uh, in the right uh, manner. So I think, I think, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of people don't know about, you know, that report. And then from there, other reports have come out that are are also important. And we have um, the United States Department of Education uh, produces what we call uh, practice guides, the, the Institute for Education Sciences. And so there's some practice guides, for example, you know, teaching, you know, academic language and content, you know, for middle school and you know, upper for middle school students or upper elementary students, here are the English learners. How do we develop their language and literacy and their academic knowledge as we move across, um, you know, the different uh, content areas that they have to learn? And I think the message we need to get out is every teacher is a language teacher and every teacher is a literacy teacher. Mm-hmm. So no matter if I'm teaching math or science or social studies, uh, yeah. Uh, there's language in there. I have to work on the vocabulary. Um, I need to make sure that they can read and have deep understanding. Uh, and and so it's when you realize I'm also a language and literacy teacher, even in math class, right? Uh, and so I think it's it's you know also we need in our teacher preparation programs to think along that framework as well that. Uh, mm-hmm. We must develop language and literacy um, as we're developing all the content areas, because you're not going to, the ultimate goal is to understand and you have to read to learn by the time you're in upper elementary and in middle school and high school and beyond in college. But we're not going to get there if um, if we didn't really think about uh, all these skills and being very comprehensive. And I, you know, I would like to see that we have a bridge. And we need this bridge. I know that there's a lot of noise out there. There's a lot of noise out there that, you know, this group, you know, is saying, well, you know, the science of reading doesn't address, you know, language and and students from diverse populations. And uh, the other group and then the science of reading group is saying, well, this group doesn't address literacy and how literacy works. And when I read about, you know, two groups I really see that everybody wants the same outcome and that yeah. we, if when we put the child at the center of everything that we do, let's come mm. to terms. Let's, you know, why are these children so behind? You know, you know, we need better, you know, opportunities for the oral language development and we need to incorporate that. It's not a silo. I don't learn language separate from literacy. And I don't learn literacy separate from language. Language is in everything that we do. And so how can we bridge together the work, you know, the work that has been done and uh, really think about the child and meet them at their point of need? And some of them will need all of them will need oral language development. Every child, even monolingual English speakers, we need to do better at vocabulary and language yeah. and complex language. You know, they will all need work on oral language, but some, but many of them don't know how reading works. And so, and what we all also find with these students is they quickly get that. So we can move on. I got, I gave them those foundational skills. Mm -hmm. So let's continue with the language and the fluency and the comprehension and looking at, you know, deep understanding and expanding their world knowledge. Um, But we've got to come together. It's time. It's time to come together to understand that language is in everything that we do, but we do have to have some of the, many of these students will need, you know, those early years, everyone needs those foundational skills. We know you know, kindergarten, first grade, let's get it wrapped up, right? And then we move on to the more complex, uh, you know, uh, language structures, more complex literacy structures, getting to read all the different genres and celebrating, um, you know, all the the different ways we can learn about languages and cultures. 
But um, this, you know, I'm against you and you're against me. And who loses? The children. That's right. who loses. That's right. Mm, that's powerful. Well, um, that that's really powerful. And I know one of the things that you did, and I'm not, I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but one of the things that you did to try to bridge this gap is I think that's where the genesis of this book that you wrote, which it's called Literacy Foundation for English Learners. I have it in my hand. Listeners, I know you can't see me right now. I have it in my hand. I literally got it. Thank goodness for Amazon Prime because I got it over the weekend, overnight delivery. And I cannot keep my eyes off of this book because it is brilliant and amazing and is so accessible. First of all, can you tell me how and why this book came to be? And then we'll dive in a little bit to it. Right. So really how it came to be was, you know, I I really think about um, all the things that I get to do and how I get to help kids and see, and now I see those kids that I help. Now I see their kids. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) She fixed me right up. You're going right to her. And, uh, but we get them earlier now because of all the awareness, right? But I think, I think what it, what it really comes down to is I've had opportunities to talk, to explain and trying to bring research to practice. And I thought, you know, you know, you should put this and get all your colleagues that, you know, and that have been on this journey. So many colleagues all across this nation that are, you know, my mentors, uh, you know, I, I think about all my mentors and, and think about, well, how can we, how can we, um, you know, express that in a way that makes sense, that's user-friendly and that brings the research um, to practice of what we know, you know, what we still need to know, and think about more deeply the context of uh, of, the, of these students. And so there's all kinds of vignettes of these different, you know, case studies and different students in there. But really looking at what did I talk about? The components of, you know, I was trying to get to the components of language. So I talk about the sounds, phonology, the words, vocabulary, the morphology, but also understanding, you know, syntax, you know, how, how do words go together in a language and how do we use that for writing and, and then comprehension, you know, how do I become a strategic active reader, um, a problem solver, a thinking student? Um, and, and, and how do I, you know, how do I learn best and what are, and, and really trying to get to educators to think about, try this, try that, uh, think about this, think about that and giving samples of, of um, this is one way you might do it. This is how you make the connection. Here's a sample lesson. Um, here's a way you could maybe screen for some of these early little things here. We have lots of assessments uh, that are out there, but, but the bottom line is no matter the language, you know, uh, no matter, you know, the child, if you're in an alphabetic language, we know young children start to recognize print and they recognize the letters and they, you know, then we want them to connect those letters to sounds and to be able to decode and read them. But as we work with English learners, even as they develop and typically, by the way, they, you know, uh, when I work in the Spanish language, oh, they get those foundational skills, you know, quick. And so we're always working on further developing vocabulary and world knowledge and that kind of thing. But here's the thing. They can do the same in English, but I need to be working all the while on language. And what happens often is we don't want to... and. and we work inside. We cannot work in silos. Oh, I'm going to do this. And next I'm going to do that. No, you know, as I'm doing Mm. this work, I'm bringing in all those components. And so in the book, I try to show how I bring in the phonology and the vocabulary and the morphology and the syntax and the pragmatics, even as we're learning literacy and language. And it's just that framework where, you know, I know, I know that you know, language is so essential and reading is language based. So, so it's not an afterthought. It's I'm working on language and everything that I do in reading. And that those are the kind of lessons that I've, uh, you know, kind of have models for them in the book to show this is how you do it. You can do this. And this is how it looks. This is, you know, this is how you infuse 
sounds and words and use and structure and context. Um, this is how you do it. Hmm. And when you were thinking about your audience, I know we, we talked a, about a couple of different resources that came out at, after the book or in parallel for the book. Can you talk a little bit about those resources that are there? Yes. So, um, so when the book was written, the idea was, hmm, could this be a course in a university program preparing teachers to work with um, English learners? And uh, could so I wrote up, you know, what they would do for the entire semester, week by week, and so, uh, you know, professors can access that uh, through the uh, publisher, Richard Brooks Publishing, and and they can have that. You know, you get the book, you get that too. And then fortunately, like I'm so fortunate, Susan, I'm so fortunate that you, re you all reached out to me because um, <laughs> I, the uh, patent out of Pennsylvania reached out and they said, you know, we're going to be reading this book with our educators in Pennsylvania. And would you be willing to do a book study week by week by week, going chapter by chapter? And I invited, you know, the contributors to the book in. Oh, it was a, so much fun. And we had oh, all, wow. these, all these persons coming in to really discuss and had discussions and people asking questions and us trying to answer those questions and lead them to other resources. And so they have that available, you know, on their YouTube channel. And some people, you know, the other day I, you know, did a webinar for them and they said, you know, on that chapter one, you know, we just got 2000, you know, people looking at it. So that makes me so happy because I think about 2000, 22 kids in a classroom, you know, I'm just thinking about kids, 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 how many kids will this affect? But the bottom line was, put this together. And then also for those, I was thinking about school districts, sometimes school districts, they have teachers and they meet, you know, regularly to have those, you know, um, those, you know, community of practice uh, committees and, and, um, and uh, what we see is, oh, this would be a wonderful, you know, learning uh, that they can, and then they could go practice and come back. Hey, how did it work out? Let's, let's talk about it. Um, and I think that's, that is important as well. And more recently, um, you know, we're thinking about, I work with children with disabilities about, you know, in special education and in the dyslexia field that uh, we should be thinking about um, how, uh, when you work with these students and provide interventions, how you should be providing the intervention focused on their language and uh, focused on all of the assets that they bring uh, to this setting of intervention mm. and use that to the advantage of the student and also to your advantage. It makes your life easier as an instructor because they get it right. quicker. Uh, because you made a connection. And so I really, um, you know, I'm so grateful that, you know, people have reached out and, and I have a funny story to tell when it came out and, and Brooks publishing and people started Elsa, the book is out and, and, but I'm having trouble getting it. And then Amazon, they're out. And I'm like, really? And this is only the first week. And I called my mom and I told her, mom, I think the book, book whatever they got sold out in the first week. And my mom goes, no, they probably only made two copies, yours and mine. And what I love about that is, you know, you're always about your mom putting you in your place. And then I have my sister saying, I was looking at the nation's report card and you were always talking about all this work on bioliteracy and making a difference. And I don't see those scores going up for this population of students. I go, do you know what it takes? It takes to move a mountain, to move an entire country, that oh, we yeah. have regions of success. And that's the other thing that we you know, we have so much success and so much expertise in our schools, but we need to celebrate that. You know, you're, you're never a prophet in your own land. And we have so many people. And I think the more we start sharing and telling the stories of success, the better off um, that we will yeah. be. Yeah, that's, that's a, that's a lovely way to say it. Um, and I'm sorry about your mom. I mean, come on, mom. <laughs> She's such a teaser. I was like, oh, man. I go, I, go, I know they printed a little bit more than that. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's not a bestseller or anything like that. But, but I mean, at least it's it's reached the hands of, you know, 
teachers and and uh, persons like yourselves that can influence um, the field and influence thinking about you know these students in a different way, and that we're not going to think in the same way. We're really going to differentiate and really have this, you know, they, this value added, you know, they add so much value um, and, and they have so Mm -hmm. much value to add, but let's celebrate that and let's bring that in and let's do so intentionally. You know, we know teachers spend about 30% of their day on oral language, but it's not as well designed and intentional and purposeful. So we're not getting the results um, that we need on their oral language um, development. And so uh, I think that's uh, very important. Hmm. I, I know in, a, in our pre-call conversation, you really had a lot of passion when you talked about, you know, the dilemma the classroom teacher faces, and we made reference to it earlier, um, but the, the idea that I'm, I maybe only can speak English but you really believe that in spite of that, there's a lot of things that teachers can do to help mm-hmm. support their, the second language mm-hmm. learners. Right. What, what advice do you have for teachers on that? Right. I know sometimes it can be so intimidating because a lot of times teachers say, well, I've got these children and they all speak various languages. You know, what am I to do and how am I, you know, how can I meet them at their point of need when I've got, you know, a class of you know, 20 or 22 students. And, and, and we know that when we uh, have that opportunity to also give the children opportunity to work in small groups within our classroom settings, that can be so beneficial because also children are more willing, you're more willing to express yourself in a, you know, smaller group than in the big group trying to risk take in this new language. But what I want to say is that, first of all, know about know about the English language and teach it, uh, you know, teach it in a way that really does cover all those aspects of, um, of developing, you know, not only those foundational skills, but thinking about, you know, the, 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 the language, the comprehension, the world knowledge. But the other thing is, like I said, you know, when you have these students that speak these other languages, so I go and I investigate, okay, let me think about, and you know, and families are our partners as well. And oftentimes, you know, that's what I say, mm-hmm. they are our resource. And so as we, they're intimidated by the school setting. And um, so let's bring them in and let's, you know, really get them to help us and um, to understand, you know, their child better. But it really does take us the time. If you spend time up front understanding more and then it makes you being able to deliver then the children will respond because they had something to connect to and i just think about that you know we speak they have all these different languages well you know i can be prepared like oh okay and maybe there's not a connection to be made maybe there that sound doesn't exist but is there something that's similar and i always i talk about in the book i talk about approximations and and how you can get around uh, that as well and and the other thing i i talk about is you know i'm also from the point of you know uh, speech and language how children process the sounds and how they produce the sounds will be how they read and write and spell them. And so Mm. don't take in the classroom. uh, Don't, we don't want the, you know, the misarticulation. It's one thing to have an accent. Accent's fine, but not incorrect production. So I've got to get them to be able to discriminate uh, those sounds and produce those sounds. And so I actually, you know, have in there and I teach teachers, these are the sounds made with the lips. These are the sounds pushing the tongue up. These are the sounds in the back, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you know, so that's important as well. And don't be afraid because you don't know the language. You will be amazed. So what kind of connection can I make at the sound level? What kind of connection can I make at the word level? What kind of connection can I make at the vocabulary level? And what connection can I make to their 
language and culture. Children love reading and seeing themselves in books and that makes them more engaged. That's awesome. And um, I think that's another way that we celebrate and we also validate so that the children feel comfortable and they feel acknowledged. Um, I think that that's important as well. Uh, And there's so many different uh, books available. And now with, you know, technology, everything's at our fingertips. It's amazing. Um, The other thing that we know, the other strategies that we know that helps English learners is, you know, quickly having those visuals for sometimes they were complex things. We quickly found a short video. One, one thing was a mime. I remember that um, classroom and I was like, Oh, just teacher, just get in there and just show them it in action. They, you know, this is what a mime is. This is what they do. Isn't that fun? Um, and we pretend, can we get up and act like, you know, we're a mime. And so it's getting them engaged and, you know, in, in the world of, you know, of working with, uh, uh, ESL, you know, we know those visuals help. We know a quick demonstration will help all of that. It just as concrete as we can make it. The other thing that we take advantage. And I want to talk a little bit about vocabulary and, and I give the example of the simple word of run and, Oftentimes, uh, and Isabel Beck writes about uh, in her book about, you know, words that are basic, common, everyday words and um, and then words that are academic words and words that are academic, mm-hmm. but they're very narrow in their scope. But what I want to say is for English learners, you're going to work on the academic words, the tier two words that, you know, um, are recommended. But we also need to address tier one words in more depth and the simple word of run, all right, I came up with 45 different definitions, all right? So you run your mouth, you know, all these sayings, right? You run amok, uh, oh, you yeah. know, you run yes. the temperature, right? You have a dog run, right? And so you run um, you run the governor's campaign. Um, so, so when we think about even simple words can have so many multiple meanings, And as students who are learning English as their second language, they haven't had the same opportunities. So let's bring those opportunities in there. And let's not only know about, you know, the what they call the breadth of words, but also their depth and oftentimes Mm. simple words. uh, And I can use that like with table, you know, I'm going to table that item on the agenda. You know, I sit at the table. We do multiplication tables, right? Oh, uh, I have the table when I remember chemistry. Right? <laughs> so, um, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't do so well in that. <laughs> um, oh, but all I the, can't recall the name of it either. But <laughs> yeah, so uh, yeah, I was like, ah, I don't like this so so much, but I have to learn it. So, uh, but so it is so important uh, to understand that as well. So that for English learners, it's not only knowing all those academic words, but it's also exploring in depth words and exploring, you know, those multiple meanings and how we have sayings and where do those things come from? And, you know, you really, when you are able to use idioms in a language that really demonstrates a higher form of language use And when you're able to use those in the appropriate context, how wonderful that is. And so that's really so beneficial to English learners. So helpful. And for our listeners, we're going to link them to these resources that you've shared with us. So that they're just a click away from all the things that they need. Um, Sort of as we wrap up and close, is there are there any final thoughts for our listeners? Wow, like there's yes. a multitude of information yes. packed in here. The other <laughs> thing I want to talk about is that I always want to think about preventing any kind of reading disability and think about you know good instruction in those early years. It's comprehensive, but I want to think of that schools are following a multi-tiered system of support. And that as students are there, we're really thinking about all of the, you know, all of these, you know, variables that can occur, but we want to monitor very closely and we shouldn't be afraid of taking a look, but we have to make sure that the look is a valid look, that it makes sense, that we've taken into consideration the context. But, you know, uh, a project that I worked uh, with um, for the Office of Special Education 
programs and with uh, Dr. Linda Cavazos and Dr. Alba Ortiz um, was on the multi-tiered systems of support for English learners. And we have a, a, a site for that MTSS for L's. And we had um, uh, our colleagues from the University of Texas at Austin, Leticia Grimaldo and um, Shannon Gerard, and then also at Portland State with um, um, uh, Julius Barca Brown and, and Amanda Sanford. And what we have in there are some simple tools for, first of all, looking at language, like some rubrics, but also at the multi-tiered system of support. As you're working with English learners, have you considered, you know, do you rate yourself a one, a three or a five, you know, where do you rate yourself and how you manage, you know, this multi-tiered system of support? How are we doing in tier one? How are we doing uh, with those interventions? Are we, you know, embedding these language skills as we work in reading? Are we thinking about, are we thinking about the screening tools? Are they really measuring what they purport to measure? And are they fair and valid for the population in which we're using? If not, what other kinds of things can we do? Um, and so really looking at those tools and we have some literacy briefs on there for children with disabilities and without disabilities that can be so helpful. We um, And also thinking about, you know, collaboration and leadership. Um, you know, we just put one out, a literacy brief. I think it just went out like maybe last week. Um, but these are tools that are free that, you know, uh, the United States Department of Education and Office Special Education Program has sponsored and they're called Model Demonstration uh, projects. And so it's really about getting in the field and working in the field, bringing research to practice. And all of ours was uh, for English uh, learners. And so there's some tools, there's more work that we want to do on those kind of uh, rubrics mm -hmm. that we've uh, developed. And, um, but so much information there, once again, at your fingertips, <laughs> at your fingertips that can be used to really understand uh, better. And I mentioned that all the time because you don't want that work to like for folks not to know about it. So, you know, five years were spent on that and we've really got to do a better job of getting the message out. Here's some tools that came out of those projects that can mm. be so helpful. Mm -hmm. Great. It sounds like a whole other episode. We could talk about that. Actually. Yeah. yeah. It, I don't, you know, it might, you know, some people I, I was thinking about, oh, but it might be boring to go through all of that, but it might be so helpful as well. Uh, maybe, <laughs> yeah. Maybe we yeah. could do one on, on, on each literacy brief and bring in the whole team, you know, why not? Uh, so um, <laughs> that would be cool anyway. So uh, I think I think those uh, and I, I think I, I I do have them. I didn't have all the all the literacy briefs were not done by the time this was published, but the website is there and and um, you know those projects are wrapped up. You know we hope that there'll be you know in the future some you know further funding to research further. But what I think those are very valuable. Uh, for the audience to know as we try to think about the science of reading amongst English learners uh, that are typically developing and those that we're worried about that aren't developing as we thought they would be. And first we have to look at ourselves. Was it dystichia or was it actually yeah. dyslexia, right? Are, are we the problem? <laughs> Did yeah. we not do a good job? Or Am I seeing this child struggle? What are some things that I can do to help? And uh, what do I need to do to differentiate that instruction? And uh, how do I, uh, and then if not, what other help can can I get? But we're all a team. Let's not work in silos. So we have so many resources. We have, you know, we have other colleagues in our grade levels and other grade levels. We have, you know, literacy coaches. We have, you know, speech and language field. We have, uh, you know, we need to really collaborate and work together. And I know that that takes time, but through that collaboration, um, we can have success. And And I think when you, children get more opportunities for practice and um, that then the better off they'll be to, you know, achieving their goals for literacy and language. Mm -hmm. hmm. Well, like I said, this episode is packed full of information that our listeners are going to be able to dig in for, for weeks. We really, really appreciate, number one, all the work that you're doing and then your willingness to, to share with us. Um, and so, yeah, thanks again. We will link listeners you, one more Susan. time to all of these resources. Um, and it's been such a pleasure. 
It's been so great to get to talk to you and, and uh, hopefully um, the audience will find um, uh, this information of value to them in their settings so they can reach and teach every child, including our English learners, because they're smart and they're going to be also such a great have a great promising future and i always say they're going to take are you going to take care of me when you're a doctor are you going to take care of me in the future (laughs) and uh so i i know we want an educated population and um, these students have so much to offer so uh let's reach and teach all students including our english learners thanks so much for listening to that conversation with elsa which we first released in october 2021 Check out the show notes for resources from her and let us know what you thought about this episode in our Facebook discussion group, Science of Reading the Community. Check back next time for the launch of season six. In fact, I'm so excited to share it with you that I want to give you a tiny sneak peek. And we looked at Scarborough's rope and talked about how like you can't just teach one side of things. If we're really focused just on word recognition, we're not going to get all of our kids to where they need and deserve to be. There's much more of that to come, so keep your ears on this feed for the start of Season 6. Thank you so much for listening.